Their people look like they're ready to listen. But there's no talk yet. So give me a moment or so. It's starting to bubble to the surface. Any people here for the very first time? For those who are here for the first time, uh, are you also completely new to Vipassana meditation? No. Is there anyone? So that, that means everyone has had some exposure to this or Zen or some Tibetan Buddhism. Anyone who has not just walked in off the street to keep, keep dry? No. <laughs> okay. These talks have been going on for a few years as a theme that I've been developing, waiting for it to, for the expiration date to, to assert itself, but it doesn't seem to yet. Um, <clears throat> but I can pick up where we left, where we left off a few weeks ago. A number of themes were being emphasized. One, the urgency of self-discovery, that it isn't a luxury item. Um, and I, in order to get to a point of helping us understand uh, that there's a new kind of practice emerging, uh, from my point of view, hopefully, uh, that's appropriate for lay people that is not uh, a practice light, L-I-T-E, but has its own uh, dignity and profundity and depth and needn't apologize. Um, the reason I've said that is, uh, I said it last week and just very briefly, um, <clears throat> Buddha Dharma for a few thousand years now has been largely a monastic tradition. Obviously, if you've read anything, you know that lay people have also participated. They have been uh, enlightened lay people. But by and large, the monastic perspective, I feel, has colored everything. And so uh, what I tried to do last week was give a few hints historically, not last week, whenever it was, a month or so ago, uh, of how the how the Dharma, as it came from India, went from India uh, to China, Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and so forth, um, how it's gone through changes and inevitably is going through changes right now. It must. For it to be viable and to survive, it has to conserve what is timeless. There is something that is timeless in the teaching. It has nothing to do with culture. It has nothing to do with how long ago or whether it was yesterday. If, it is, if that isn't true, then I think we're wasting our time. Uh, and then there's another part which is, has to be, that's, that has to be changed, that has to adapt to the particular culture that the teachings arrive in, just like a person. Uh, when you arrive, you have to learn about this culture. And there's a tension between, not a tension, but a tension between something that's timeless and something that is very much dependent on culture and time, which is the world of form. It's constantly changing. 
And so how do how can a practice develop that takes into account, in a sense, the soil out of which it's growing, but doesn't lose the essence, which is timeless? And that, I feel, is our challenge. CIMC is an experiment in that direction, having been here since the first day that we started, uh, and we've been learning as we go. Uh, just to refresh those of you who are here, refresh your memory, and for others, um, the practice in India was uh, in, uh, this will be a, a very abbreviated version, uh, the monks did virtually no manual labor, were not allowed to, remember things were more mostly agricultural then, were not allowed to till the land for a variety of reasons, uh, some of which to not kill worms and other creatures that were on, underneath the soil. But I think there's more to it than that. When it came to China, the Chinese uh, loved a lot of it, but they uh, were astonished and disapproved of the fact that there were these grown men who, uh, in a sense, wouldn't do any manual labor. It's just the Chinese much more earthy culture, uh, and there were tensions. Uh, some of the monasteries were closed. People were forced to Buddhist monasteries to abandon their monastic training. But in a few school, one main school, the Zen school, survived because a Zen master by the name of Pei Chang said a day of no work is a day of no eating. And he instituted, he put his monks to work. And they started to grow things. And that was much more acceptable. Um, later on, well, then there was another example in Chinese culture of Layman Pong. Now, Layman Pong's whole family attained awakening, and he and his daughter, especially his daughter, when apparently, I wasn't there, I don't know, uh, were very, very deep. But in this, this story is well known in certain circles. Uh, they demonstrated how free they were by taking all of their, in quotes, earthly belongings. Um, I say in quotes because it may not be necessary to make that separation between worldly and spiritual. That may itself be a, contri a contrivance invented by us humans. They put all their belongings on, their, on a boat and sank it. Uh, I take that to mean that that approximated the monastic model, that, that although they were lay people, they were saying, you see, we're, we're really spiritual because we have very few possessions. That implies that uh, few possessions mean you're more spiritual. Uh, or, uh, if you have a lot of possessions, you can't possibly be spiritual. So those of you who have put on some mascara or who have come well-dressed with ties, hopeless. <laughs> and if you just bought something today, aside from it's good you're helping the economy, but forget about it. Um, truly, if you the monastic culture is not stupid. Uh, so that, let's say, having one meal a day, owning just a very few things like robes and so forth, um, that is a training. That's, that's a contrivance, an invention, uh, to enable people to learn certain qualities. But having lived in monasteries, and perhaps some of you have, external uh, 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 conforming to certain externals doesn't guarantee anything. That is, you can follow all the rules in a monastery, have one meal a day, maybe just one little carrot, 
and uh, have three robes all made from rags, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you've gotten free. Then again, is it, it's possible to be very well-dressed. One of my main teachers had his clothes custom-tailored in London at Savile Row, if you know anything about that. He was brought up by aristocrats, and I felt he was quite free. So that I th- feel a deeper teaching has nothing to do with whether you own a lot or you don't own a lot. Now, having few things and following certain kinds of guidelines can, for certain people, be used in such a way as to help you get free. But in and of itself, having one meal a day, having done that, and I like to eat, um, uh, it can contribute to being more modest, to being less needy, and it also can feed your ego, where you just feel, I can get by on one meal a day. I'm terrific. The ego is shameless. It can latch on to anything. So if you think having few possessions is what makes you more spiritual, the ego will go along with it and say, terrific. I don't care. I'm shameless. I'll do whatever you like as long as I remain supreme, as long as I reign supreme. Okay, so uh, when this teaching went to Japan, the, the Japanese took it over, and there are many dramatic examples of how the practice was also brought into the world because what I was trying to say last time is that the model of practice that we have here, I didn't make it up, it's really an ancient one, is that practice and life are the same thing or they they can become the same thing. At first, of course, it doesn't feel that way because we're very, we're trying to master certain techniques and methods and we think that sitting more will, the more you sit, the more awake you'll get the more liberated you'll be. Uh, and as one of my teachers put it, frogs can sit for hours on end and they're not particularly enlightened. Chickens can sit forever and they're pretty stupid. So um, forms are forms and they can be used in skillful ways, but they don't necessarily lead to that. So there's something much more subtle that is the issue. And it's internal. It's self, it has to do with you and your own mind. Now, in Japan... Pei Chang's uh, A Day of No Work is A Day of No Eating was extended so that um, there is a very famous uh, teaching. If you have the time and the interest, you might want to read it. It's from Dogen, and it's Dogen's Instructions to the Cooks, where he, uh, in great detail, describes how the process of putting a meal together can in and of itself be a spiritual practice. Uh, and that, of course, has everything to do with how you relate to how you approach, finally, any activity. Um, if you read some, as some of you I know have, some of the ancient Chinese, Japanese, Korean, uh, Vietnamese poetry, uh, Dharma poetry, uh, a lot of it has to do with simplicity uh, of just uh, drawing, of chopping wood and drawing water, being enlightened, of... Uh, have a cup of having a cup of tea being enlightened. Uh, those are disarming kinds of examples because they seem very simple, but they're statements that are shorthand for the quality of mind that's having tea a certain way. For a mind that's relationship to drawing water and chopping wood is a certain way. But what I was trying to say, and here's where I'm going to leave off and pick up for us here, is. The examples all come from um, agricultural society, uh, monastic society, 
and they have mainly to do with manual labor, physical things that we do. Okay. Now, relationship, of course, was uh, taken seriously, mainly through precepts. If you enter into any of the monasteries uh, in the current ones, uh, the ones I practice in in Korea and Japan, they have elaborate rules of regula- uh, regulations of how to behave. So everyone knows that how we behave with each other needs to be part of the training. But now it's come to us, and what I feel has been neglected is relationship. Uh, now, the, <clears throat> the Buddha's teaching can be viewed as all about relationship. But relationship here is not exclusively to people uh, because getting free has to do with attachment. It has to do with uh, self-involvement, uh, egocentric relationship to anything, to nature, to money, uh, to people, of course, to ideas. So anything can become the source of suffering depending on how we relate to it. But as lay people, as people who we're in the world and we are in relationships, we work, we do work, we do handle money, uh, some of us raise families, have children, we have had parents and so forth. Now, this has been proven to be difficult. In fact, it's openly talked about in monastic culture, some of it written down, but some of it I experienced firsthand, that's part of why people become monks and nuns. In other words, those people out there are nuts, you know, or relationship is impossible, very, very difficult. Let me out of here. I'll just be celibate and so forth. Um, For some people, that's a wonderful solution. Some people are, in a sense, born for that and flourish in a monastic culture. Many don't, in my observation. Uh, But... Is that, but here we are. We are in relationship. Now even here, what happens is a dichotomy develops where people become fixated on sitting on a cushion, bench, chair, going to retreat centers, uh, going on retreats for extended periods of time. That's the real thing. And then, uh, with hesitation and resistance, oh, I've got to go back to, and this is language that's often used, the so-called real world. The real world is what? The world of work, of relationship, of earning a living, and so being a student, and so forth. Okay. The model that is being suggested, I feel, grows out of the, the historical development uh, where, uh, behave, where more of life was included as practice. And now, in addition to, to a cup of tea, and in addition to, to cooking, and in addition to chopping wood, uh, we're adding the big one, how we are with each other. And this, of course, is the most difficult for all of us. Uh, it's, um, frankly, it seems like we're, we've uh, failed. I mean, the human race, that is, I'm talking about. Uh, uh, it seems like we're able to have accomplished so many magnificent, extraordinary things, most notably science and technology. It's obvious. And in culture. And yet with each other, um, I don't know if much has happened. I don't know if it's worse or better, but it's certainly not. I don't know if better is possible, but it's clear that no radical transformation in the way we are with each other has taken place. You just have to turn on the news at any time, just randomly, or open up, as a friend of mine did, and I did. There's a, there was a huge book of hi- history, this thick. We just opened it up, 
and just stuck a finger in war going on, a pillage, plunder, crime, wherever you looked. So that seems to be our situation. Maybe that's the curriculum. Is that hopeless? Uh, oh, you're assigned to planet Earth in a human body? Well, this is the curriculum. Everyone's nuts down there. They can't get along with each other. They're greedy. They have a lot of anger, and they're confused. Uh, and they impose their confusion upon each other. And there are now six billion egomaniacs roaming the planet with promise of even more egomaniacs to be born till we'll be drowning in egomaniacs. But if you want it, okay, we're shipping you there. Now, can we turn, this is a, an ancient uh, way of looking at it. I didn't, again, I didn't make it up. Can we, can we turn a bad situation into a good situation? That's the whole point of Dharma, really is it's a new way of looking at the same life that everyone faces. Uh, and yet, But this new way can make all the difference in the world, totally. Um, so let me sketch out some of that. I don't know how far we can go this evening. Obviously, relationship is a huge subject, complex. And I hope it generates some questions on your part when we uh, open things up. Uh, for those of you who have heard any of the uh, previous talks, been emphasizing self-knowing, uh, distinguishing it from self-knowledge. Self-knowledge is something you accumulate and you write down in a spiral notebook or uh, you write a novel about it or your memoir. And it's, it's the story of me and my life starring me and all the changes I've gone through. And if you're lucky, it might even be a bestseller and be on the top in the New York Times and all that. It's self-improvement. Uh, Dharma is not about self-improvement. It's about self-revelation, uh, revealing the ways of the self. And by means, and as we do that simultaneously, that enables us to transcend the self. Because at least in the Buddhist teaching, and I by no means think it's unique to the Buddhist teaching, the language is different in other traditions and other religions. What the Buddha is saying is finally, and I'll elaborate on this. But once the Buddha was challenged, someone said, can you give me the essence? What is, the, what is really the whole thing about in just one phrase? Uh, and this person was familiar with the Four Noble Truths and uh, the uh, uh, mental poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, the concepts that if you've read any Buddhism or been to any of these centers, you've heard them. And the Buddha said, Yes, there's one exchange, there's one, there's one that if you take care of this, you've taken care of everything, the precepts, the refuges, everything. Okay, what's that? And he said, don't attach to anything as being me or mine. So the root problem, finally, there, on, there are all kinds of teachings and all kinds of methods that are helpful. But if you look closely, finally, even attachment, like the first noble truth, there is suffering in human life. There's anguish. That's a fact. I think we all, I don't have to contest that, I hope. Emotional anguish. And there's a cause, craving and attachment. But when you look closely at it, you'll see that finally, even deeper than that, it's me. It's me that wants things to be a certain way, and they aren't. And I don't like it, and it hurts. It's me that uh, feels it, it owns this, or this represents me, etc. And so the Buddha is, in a sense, getting right at the heart of the whole thing, and saying, finally, it boils down to attachment to me and mine. Me is this, uh, and in this teaching, and this is not a belief, 
And those who are rather new, this may sound uh, unreachable. Even those who've been around for a while might think it's unreachable um, and far-fetched or confusing. But what is being said is this notion of a self is actually untrue. Uh, it's, it's a mental construct. It seems to be true. It seems to be solid. It seems to be really, mm, this is me. And everything else is coming and going, but me is, mm, this is a real thing. Uh, and it's not that you're supposed to, you've heard it as emptiness, you've heard it as not self. Maybe you haven't. If you're new, you may not have. If you stick around, you, you'll hear, hear it a lot. Um, it's not that you're meant to believe in that. Well, I believe that there's no, there's no, uh, no enduring solid self. That won't help much. It's not a belief. You might feel, take it as a shelter, that you belong to a group of millions of Buddhists and feel good about that, but it won't get you free. So uh, liberation and enslavement have everything to do with identification and attachment to all these constructions that the mind makes up about itself. The mind keeps making up things, characterizations, conclusions, images about who we are and about who the other person is. These are mental constructs. Okay. If they're unexamined, they feel really real. They've been conditioned since childhood, powerfully conditioned. And so there are there, is, a, is it difficult to get free of that? Yes and no. Yes and no. If you want to be done with it in one, uh, one cut, there have been a few rare individuals who have, who've, uh, that's happened to. But for most of us, it's a gradual weakening of that through clear seeing. It's not, it has nothing, a little bit, you have to have enough of a faith in the possibility that the teaching has something to offer. But it's not blind belief or belief forever. It's not blind faith. It's the possibility, some conviction, that maybe these teachings are helpful. But the only way you'll find out is by is through practice. Okay. So what has been emphasized when I say that self-discovery is an urge is urgent for us to understand ourselves. Self-knowing, another way of putting it. This is the doorway into wisdom. And wisdom in the Buddhist approach, in the Buddha's approach, there's no word like Buddhism in the original language. That's a modern uh Locution. Uh, there are terms like dharma, sasana, teachings, uh, way of living, etc. Okay. Um, so self-discovery is paying attention. Is paying attention to uh, the workings of your own mind and heart, and. If you think that that is totally taken care of on the cushion, then that's what I'm, what is being, we're attempting to correct that. Can some very, very important work happen in the solitude and quietude or just take this evening? For those of you who sat, just being together for 45 minutes with like-minded people in silence is helpful. Now, I hope for your sake the day comes where you don't need to round up a bunch of extras in order to meditate. That you don't need it, but you can sit with people or not. But to begin with, I think most people have found it very, very helpful to have the support of other people, uh, especially then if you keep doing this, some of the things that come up can be fear, loneliness, anger, 
all kinds of things. And uh, it's helpful to have people who are there and who are doing the same thing, and we all help each other just by being with each other, aside from any uh, more overt support through teachings and so forth. Um, so self-discovery and uh, wisdom is really the art of learning how to live. What that implies is that we have a lot to learn, that as a race, the human race, we don't really, we have not mastered learning how to live. I don't know if you ever master it. I had one, I practiced in one tradition in Japan uh, with a Oroshi, uh, my favorite one, and uh, when asked about, well, how do you create new Zen masters? He said, I don't. He said, I don't think Zen can be mastered. Mm-hmm. Another way of putting it, I don't think life can be mastered. Now, that's just, maybe it's just at my, my limitations, but it feels like life is bigger than any of the teachings that I've been exposed to. I've been at it for a while, but it could be my limitation. So don't, in fact, everything I'm saying tonight is I'm demonstrating my limitations in Macy's window, as we used to say. Macy still exists, right? They haven't gone. (laughs) But I think that saying is archaic. Okay. Um, So wisdom is learning how to live and learning how to live in the context of what the Buddha is teaching is uh, learning how to live skillfully. Skill is when how we the quality of mind, the quality of speech, the quality of behavior is such that it's helpful, it's beneficial, it enhances life for ourselves and for others. That's considered skillful. You could call say it's wise. Unskillful is the contrary, where what we the quality of mind and of course the thoughts and actions that flow out of that mind are harmful. They first and foremost harm us, and then they also harm the are the people in our lives. The quality of life is damaged. So A lot of what wisdom is, is unlearning what's unskillful and replacing it by what is skillful. Now, how do you learn that? Well, books point out certain major major thrusts, like attachment, craving, and so forth, ignorance, greed, hatred, and delusion. There are a lot of verbal guidelines. And the teachings are pointing us. But I would say the most important pointer and... From my point of view, all I'm doing, I hope, what I intend, let's put it that way, it depends on what you do with it. I'm pointing to the place where you learn how to live is not from me. It's from you. That is, I'm pointing to that your suffering and the end of your suffering or the alleviation of the anguish, it all has to do with how you relate to yourself. That's the heart of meditation. That's self-knowing. That's self-discovery. That's... um, Uh, seeing the ways of the self and seeing the consequences, such and such action leads to such and such an effect. And as you more and more pay attention to how you actually live, keyword words, attention, and actually, not how we think we live, but actually, and that depends on the quality of attention because to begin with, we have to do the best we can. And to begin with, our awareness is quite distorted. We're leading up to relationship. So you can learn about yourself on the cushion. Just sit there. 
you know, as the mind becomes calm, those of you who have been around for a while, you know it's not simply about the breath. It's not simply about saying metta or a mantra all the time. It's about just being and watching everything come and go, arise and pass away. So you're, you're watching your own mind and, and hopefully learning from it, seeing how the mind works, seeing the nature of thought, the nature of moods, how the mind and body uh, uh, work together or don't work together. That, and we have a situation invented by humans where we're in silence, we're protected, and we have a very simple, a dramatically simplified situation where all you have to do is be with yourself when you're sitting. You don't have to answer any cell phones, you don't have to have, relate, you don't have to eat, you don't have to shop. Whatever it is that makes up life, temporarily we have a respite. And not that that's necessarily a picnic, because what you're left with is what? Yourself. Now, there's a big attrition in meditation, my observation. My friends in Europe tell me it's the same, and my Asian friends tell me it's always been that way. Uh, many people come with unrealistic expectations that within five years you'll get enlightened, and then when you don't, um, and then it starts to get deep, and you start to see certain things about yourself. It's, uh, it takes courage. And it also takes humility. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, I don't have enough time to practice. Uh, I would say it's not a matter of, of time. It's a matter of interest. In other words, if you're not interested in the quality of your life, and I assume if you're here, you are, and I'm making a link that the quality of your life has everything to do with your understanding of yourself. Insight, vipassana, is the clear seeing into yourself. Because that every, all of our actions are issued from within. We're putting our signature on everything we do. And so this is where we look. Now, if you limit the practice to sitting, which does happen, and unfortunately, often it happens to people who really take the sitting, and you can get into states of peace and bliss at a certain point rather easily and feel very, very good. Now, the teachings are designed to take that and to bring it into daily life. To take that and to bring it into daily life. It's not meant to be left at CIMC or IMS or wherever else you may practice or have practiced. So the protected solitude with or without other people is precious, invaluable. We do a lot of it here. I still do it, love it. And... Uh, what is being attempted, and tonight I'm going to take on the most difficult one, at least verbally, which is relationship, is if you stop short of your life exactly as it is, exactly, it's actually happening. This is the world we live in. It's just true. Now, you have a particular slice of that world. But that's, that is, that's it. I asked one of my teachers... What is enlightenment? I kept driving him crazy. This is in Japan. And he just grabbed me and shook me and he said, this is it. In other words, all the suffering based on wisdom is growing out of this heart. And the liberation from it is also, it's all happening in the same place. In other words, if you're interested in the Dharma, you're sitting on it. It's you. The path is you. We've, we use nice language on um, the Eightfold Path. It sounds like some highway, and if we just do that, and that highway leads to some static destination, 
destination, Toledo, Ohio. And then you get there, there's a sign, you have now entered Toledo, Ohio. And you got there by practicing eightfold. Uh, it's just an, ex, uh, it's a way of, ex, uh, it's an expository device. The truth is life is messier and very, very powerful, and there's a lot of um, unknowns, which you know. The teaching says that. One of the main insights that the Buddha put forward, the very first one, was insight into the changing, impermanent nature of all forms. Everything is changing, and it's changing in ways that are uncertain. Okay, so what I'm suggesting is, as lay people, if we just limit the practice to tea, or uh, chopping wood and drawing water, or cooking, or any activity, really, uh, and leave the rest out. Now, physical activities for many of us, like washing the dishes, taking the garbage out, often we relate to that as un that's something that's not valuable. This model of practice, there's no such thing as something that's useless or n not valuable. The view is that life exists to set us free. The world exists in order to set us free. Uh, life is constantly teaching. To live is to be related. Then the question becomes, what's the quality of how you relate to life and all of its manifestations? Nature, things, ideas, people. Okay, look, we're moving closer to the people part because that seems to be the one that's most challenging. Um, okay. Uh, self-improvement. I feel that a lot of what's going on in our culture is about self-improvement. And people who come to meditation want to polish uh, sandpaper off of some of the rough edges, become a bit more refined, and basically improve their sense of self. Get more self-esteem if you have low self-esteem. A better self-image if you don't have a good self-image. Granted, that may be necessary. And this is a psychotherapeutic culture, and I think that's potentially very good. In order for um, it to become genuinely dharmic, uh, that has to be used in a certain way. That is, to begin with, when you sit down or when you start meditating, a lot of what you learn, because what I'm encouraging people to do is to see practice as learning for the rest of your life. This is a school wherever you go. Uh, it keeps you fresh and young, by the way. Your body, of course, will age. But if you can begin to see that learning is something that never ends and that you, the so-called beginner's mind, don't know mind, they're getting at meeting things that we do day in and day out, maybe thousands and millions of times. Can we meet that in a fresh way and learn from what's going on? So life is constantly teaching us, but so far we haven't exhibited, we have exhibited an incapacity to learn much. So we can polish things. And at the beginning, I would say a lot of meditation, at least this form, is overlaps with a lot of good psychotherapy or even not so good psychotherapy. You learn about, or neither of them, the school of hard knocks that all my uncles kept telling me about endlessly. What do you need this meditation? The school of, that's where I learned, the school of hard knocks. Yeah, and I see how you turned out. No, I mean, <laughs> you've been knocking everyone around. They've been knocking you around. And... Uh, Thank you very much, Uncle Charlie. May you rest in peace. He's okay. He knows I'm 
I start, anyway. No, no, no okay. Um, in the limited amount of time tonight, I'd like to just uh, open it up. Self-improvement, of course, goes on and uh, improving ways of nourishing ourselves, improving our appearance, improving how we dress, improving the quality of our homes. Improve, those are all fine. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it can be quite uh, wonderful. But Dharma goes deeper than that. It can include that. It's not saying uh, just be, make everything ugly. Beauty has its place. The only thing that's wrong with beauty is that when we get attached to it and then we use it in certain ways that it makes suffering. Beauty in and of itself is beautiful. It's what makes life worth living. Beautiful beauty in people, beauty in nature, beauty in a car. That doesn't make it unspiritual if you have a car. It can if you would so identify with your car and that becomes part of who you are and you compare yourself with someone who has a, an inferior car and someone who has a superior car, then the car is just a stage prop using you to dig yourself in deeper into ego-maniacality. But in and of itself, the things of the world have their place, and they can be beautiful. So you don't have to throw away your ties and high heels. It's okay. And you can earn money, and you can enjoy beauty. You can go to the Museum of Fine Arts. I do. It's a wonderful place. So the key question is, we go back to the, the first, according to what we know, what the Buddha said is all I'm teaching, all that what's important to learn, is suffering and the end of suffering. There are many wonderful things to learn in life, but of all of them, the Buddha confined the essence, gave highest priority to we need to learn what helps us not to suffer so much. Now, let's say, so suffering and the end of suffering. That's an, a kind of a negative way of putting it. So, he doesn't talk about what happens after, let's say, if we diminish suffering or some people, let's say, are done with psychological suffering. Well, he doesn't uh, tell you what's next. But, of course, a lot, some traditions emphasize that, whether you call it awakening, true nature, Buddha nature, original nature. There are lots of – but the experience of it is beyond words, and that's part of why uh, a lot is not said about it. The Buddha talked about the original nature of the mind very rarely. He once said its original nature is luminous. Okay, that would be enough for me. It, that is, but, but how come we're not in touch with that luminosity? Because we're preoccupied with all the uh, stuff that the mind is manufacturing, moment after moment after this mood, that thought, I like, I don't like, that person doesn't dress right, his politics is no good, she doesn't know what I'm talking, uh, and we're so, we're like water bugs, just flitting on the surface and that keeps us there, and it can keep us there for the rest of our life. Vipassana practice is watching all of that arise and pass away. The mind has to be stable enough to be able to do that. That's why we use breath awareness, we use metta, and other, many other techniques. That, as the mind empties itself of its preoccupations, what you're looking for is there. It's already there. You don't construct it, you don't import it from India, because you're born with it. Our original nature is simply that. Okay, that does, may not sound impressive, so I'm going to quit there in terms of using that. Okay, so uh, if it's not f finally about self-improvement, because 
if you are emphasizing self-improvement, then according to his teachings, which you don't have to agree with, what you're doing is it may feel better in the short run, but what you're doing is you're strengthening the very source of the suffering. The very source of the problem is what you're enhancing, you're nourishing, you're enriching. Because there is a certain security that comes from feeling good about yourself, about making me and mine. It's a, but it's not real security. Uh, and there is a certain feeling of having a shelter uh, that you can crawl into and feel uh, okay about yourself. Now, I would say for most of us, it's on the way. But if you read the Buddhist teachings, the, the hardest thing to let go of is attachment to views and opinions about everything. We human beings have views and opinions about everything. But finally, what is so crucial is we have views and opinions about ourselves and about others. And so, but they're not exempt from the practice. So that far from being about, finally, about self-improvement, it's about self-dissolution. It's about self-transcendence. It's about self-discovery. And as a great Japanese master, Dogen, put it, the, the, the practice of, uh, the, to study the Buddha is to study ourself. To study ourself is to, to, is to forget ourselves. In other words, as you come to know yourself, what you see as representing itself as me, that falls away. No matter what you have concluded you are, it's just an idea. It's a construct. And there's something, an awareness that has no thinking in it. Those are the real, real insight has no thought in it, by the way. It's just clear seeing. And the seeing solves the problem. Because you start to see what something really is for the first time. To begin with, our, now here when we get to relationship, let me put forward an idea. Uh, we may have to continue next time, but we can get it started. If you view, it's just an idea, a useful one. I have found it to be extraordinarily useful. Um, relationship as a mirror. Let's limit it to people now. When you're in the presence of another person, you have a reaction. We, something is brought up inside of us. Or if nothing is, then that's what's happened. You give somebody some money and they give you a newspaper, you don't even look at them. You just take the newspaper. So that's what's happened. They're not, there's no point. You don't feel it's for whatever reason. You don't make eye contact and they don't with you. But a lot of what life is, is reactive. In Dharma language, it's conditioned. It's programmed. That is, our past is shining through all the time. We're experiencing and seeing life through the eyes of yesterday, of our conditioning. Now, when we, so that at the beginning, now, the mirror, let's go back to, uh, you remember I mentioned about it half an hour or so ago, that when the Buddha was pressed in one phrase, can you give me your sense of what your teaching is? And the Buddha said, don't attach to anything as being me or mine. If once me exists, mine follows. If you take the power out of me, the, the, the mine that belongs to me starts, it's, it's derivative. Okay. Um, now, so what is, what's the value of the mirror? 
I have found nothing, and that includes long months, months and months in silence, which I've done. I'm not bragging. It's just factual. And I know its value, and I also know it's no guarantee of anything. I have found nothing stirs up, uh, releases, exposes myself to myself as much as relationship. In a certain way, that's where the test is in terms of our spiritual maturity. I don't say this to scold anyone or for you to say, well, I feel that one hopeless. Been married 17 times. I have uh, six children by 15 different parents. (laughs) Uh, That's a mathematical impossibility. Practice is always about now. It's always about now. And so all we can do is the best that we can. And to begin with, our awareness is cloudy, mindfulness. We use the term as if it's some steady thing. But if you just walked in or you're, or you're rather new and say, I was mindful of, of what happened, and then 10 years from now someone said, say, I was mindful of what happened, the experience could be incomparable, totally different, because it's like uh, you don't know that you need eyeglasses. And suddenly someone gives you the correct prescription, and you put it on, you realize what you have not seen. You're doing your best. You're sincere. You're not lying. You can't help it. Or as the ancient Indians put it, you mistake at dusk, you mistake a rope for a snake. Well, if you see a rope as a snake, that sets in motion very, very different kinds of response, physically and mentally. If you see a snake as a rope, whoa, trouble. So uh, a lot of what Vipassana means is seeing things accurately. So that mirror in the sense that the person in, in your presence or persons, like if you have a family or if you live with a group of people, it's a house of mirrors. It's like everyone is reflecting everyone. Okay. Now, then the question is, because this is about us, I can't, you know, this is about each one of us. Can you learn from what the mirror shows you back? Let's say if you take a physical mirror. The value of it is it's clear. There are no blemishes. And sometimes it takes courage to look into it, especially as you get older. And if you know who are, well, anyway, I've noticed it. Uh, but it can happen, you know, teenagers have it worse. Oh, there's a pimple here. Oh, why are my nose is one millionth of an inch too long? This is too short. You know, so we take courage just to look in the mirror if the mirror is clear. And it its job is simply to show you what's there. That's all. If uh, it shows you uh, it has no bias, it has no preoccupation, there's no motivation. It's not invested in the thing. If you put this side of your hand there, it shows you that. If you put this side, it shows you that. Remove the hand, it shows that. That's its beauty. So as the mind becomes clearer and clearer, and that comes, the refinement, I feel, comes through practice, and practice comes through interest. And interest can often be enhanced dramatically by learning. When the practice starts to take off and we see this really is useful, not because the Buddha said so or Michael and Ryan or Larry or Maddie or someone, Joseph Goldstein or Sharon or whoever you, you teacher you relate to said so, is because you see from your own life experience and it becomes as interesting and as important as eating, as sleeping, as washing yourself, as breathing. Because you're more fully alive. When you're more aware, you're more fully alive. Living, living is relationship. To live is to be in relationship. 
uh, and in interpersonal relationships, often we're so defended. We've built up, we've, uh, we've isolated ourselves because we've been hurt. We may not even be aware of it. I think lots of good therapy uh, is excellent at helping you see that. And so we feel isolated and lonely, and we reach over a wall that our own mind has created and try to get close to another person who's also very defended and afraid of being vulnerable and fearful of getting hurt. Or even with nature. Growing up in Brooklyn, uh, there was very little nature. And when I was exposed to it, it took a while because I thought nature was something you only see in the National Geographic magazine. At a certain point, I could see a tree was amazing, that uh, all of it is. But I saw that my relationship, I didn't see it until I started doing this practice, it was compromised by a whole bunch of ideas as to what was what. That I used to know the names of a lot of birds. As soon as I threw the names out, I could really look at the birds. Uh, while I, oh, that, is that a scarlet tanager? Is that a, you know, so I was more interested in turning uh, raw reality into an abstraction and enjoying that. And in Cambridge, when I say Cambridge, you know, and environs, we prefer explanations and ideas to raw, naked reality often. And we'll do anything to avoid intimacy. And practice is about becoming intimate, first and foremost with yourself. Okay, so the mirror flashes something back at you. And the reason it takes humility and courage, I feel, is that sometimes what you see about yourself isn't what you want to see. You may have had a cherished image of yourself. And if you really pay attention, the mirror is showing you that you aren't exactly who you should be according to your own shoulds. You are what you are. And that image maybe goes crashing to the ground. And it may hurt. So you see that. But then out of that comes growth. You get, you're now freer. You're now more clear. You now have less of a burden of an idea as to who you are. And, of course, we do it to others as well. So at the beginning, the mirror, you know, in amusement parks, they have mirrors that are sort of distorted. Do you ever go, any of you haven't? You probably have seen it in a movie. You walk in and you look, you know, you're either this way or, you know, like, like that. Uh, you look like a, a surrealistic painting, you know, sort of. The mirror is intentionally like that, but a real mirror is just, its job is to reflect back exactly what's there. Now, with practice, the, the awareness becomes more and more accurate. Out of that awareness, genuine insight comes, which is liberating. Now, so in that sense, as hard as, as relationship is, it's, it's, uh, first of all, I feel we have no choice. If we don't pay attention as to how we live at work, family, school, and so forth, um, this practice will be very limited. We'll just be like hothouse plants. When we sit down in a protected environment here or elsewhere or at home, we feel great. In, out, in, out, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, may all beings, and we just feel great. And we create a sense, a split. We become non-hospitalizable schizophrenics, where there's me here, nice and cozy and safe, calm, and then there's that dirty, noisy, rotten world out there that has different politics, and they kill each other, and they eat meat, and they vote for the wrong person, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
Okay. So this is that's our challenge is to how to be uh, sane, come to some sanity. If you're already there, good. Then how to maintain it in an insane world? If the language is too so strong, replace it with something else. So if we take on relationship, and I, uh, the center is dedicated to not in any way neglecting the contemplative part. In other words, the, the sitting and going on retreats. I do it. I still do it. It's beautiful. But not if you set that up as being it, you will have a problem because most of your life will be lived with people. It will be lived off the cushion, so to speak. So uh, mindfulness can be practiced anywhere. Learning can happen anywhere. And what I'm suggesting is that relationship... Now, what does relationship flush out to get back to uh, the first thing I said, and then I think we'll call it quits for tonight, at least this part. Uh, when the Buddha said attachment to me and mine, don't attach to anything as me or mine. Uh, when you start paying attention, you will see that me or mine is really alive and well in you. And it can be the simplest thing. Somebody looks at you the wrong way, and you can feel something and you got hurt. Something says it's your turn to do the shopping. And something resists and said, no, it isn't. I did that yesterday. It's you. Now, maybe it's true, but there's something accompanying it, which is me. When we get sick for an extended period of time, there's the illness, which might be real and true, and no one's advocating how great that is. But then the mind makes up stuff, typically at a certain point, self-pity. It, it makes up a future that's cataclysmic. That's a, a catastrophe. Uh, and the practice is to see that, is to see how the mind is constantly manufacturing things. It's a dream machine. And to come back to just what is. My job is kind of simple and unrelenting, and I have to find interesting ways. I'm interested in it, but I have to keep you interested in it. Because typically, and I had a teacher who was, he didn't let me, give me an inch, and I'm most grateful to him is the mind seems to prefer to, to be in an imaginary future or a past that's over with. Horrible or wonderful past, horrible or wonderful imagining about what the future is. And my job is to get, starting with myself, is to encourage us to come back to now. What's happening right here, right now to you? Not as an idea, but as a direct, intimate experience. Now, as you get better at seeing in a, here's a given moment. You, now you might say, this is hopeless. How can we ever be free of me and mine? We're, we're, it's just asking too much. Um, in a given moment, we're not at war with ourselves. In a given moment, this sense of me comes up. I just had it a few nights ago with my wife. It wasn't, it wasn't about shopping. It was about the garbage. Trivial. And I could feel me in there. Now, when that comes up, and if it's accompanied by mindfulness, it's benign. It's not dangerous. It's just it's just what is. Oh, here comes Larry making Larry out of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> or putting it less generously, Larry turning himself into garbage. Okay. Uh, and in the seeing of it, it's just what the mind is doing. That's all. It, there wasn't necessarily any suffering in it. It's just, And that tendency gets weaker. As that gets weaker, it takes you deeper inside. And that's where the real healing takes place. The whole point, whether you call it silence or emptiness or original nature, true nature, uh, essence, there's so many words for it. Um, 
it's there, it's here right now. And then how we relate to people is going to be very, very different because it's not a reaction that comes from a sense of me, a preoccupation with me, selfing, but it comes from freedom, from a clear mind or a clearer mind. I think I'll, I'll end with a, Joseph Stalin, have you all heard of him? Uh, usually known not exactly as a great sage, but rather as a great killer, murderer, psychotic, uh, who, who really, uh, my wife is Russian, and she has stories about what went on in the Soviet, from the Soviet Union originally. Uh, I've read about it, but some of the stories that I've heard, it, if I had more hair, it would be standing on end. Uh, so Stalin is famous for something, but Stalin just missed. He was a little too literal. He could have been an enlightened yogi, but he missed because he was too literal. One of his top assistants came to him one day. I read this in a biography. And he said, he was complaining to Stalin. And he said, X is just a real pain in the butt. Uh, it gets hard for me to get him to do it. He's always questioning me. I'm getting tired of him. Stalin listened, and then he said, um, no problem. And he said, what do you mean? He said, no person, no problem. <laughs> okay, now he was literal. <laughs> uh, please don't quote me as being, uh, you know, advocating murder. Uh, it's just, it's more, it's an inner death to something. Okay, some of you, please head on. That's too, uh, you know, it's too vast. Uh, <laughs> can you narrow the question down? Well, I'm thinking, and about, I, I'm thinking about the ego in, in relationship to hurt. I to guess. what in relation to? To hurt or pain Yes. Yes. Your hurt and your fear. Yeah, because I guess typically it, I don't think of that as like an ego expanding. Well, what a, uh, why don't you find out, pay attention and find out when you're hurt. Let's say, let's say something has happened in your life with a person or an event and it hurts. Now, it's not a knife being stuck in, right? It's not physical hurt. It's emotional hurt. Mm -hmm. Okay. Rather than me say, uh, oh, stop it, you know, it is. I just say, I'm the expert here. Just throw that out. You're wrong and I'm right. Investigate. But uh, what I think you may find, and it's for you to discover, that's why self-discovery is a journey, and it can be great fun. Um, what you may find is that what is it that got hurt? And you may find that it's a sense of self that got hurt. So it's not to try to get rid of that. It's just to see it. Now, we actually are doing this practice, even if you never heard this wonderful, brilliant talk. Just kidding. <laughs> Some of you are a little serious tonight. What is it? Long day or what? Okay. Um, where were we? Help me out. Someone. Yes, we're all right. I got it. We're, uh, for example, in some, I, you've done some of this practice, right? 
Okay, so let's say you're instructed to pay attention to the body and you feel bodily sensations. And somebody uh, insults you and says, you think you're wonderful, but you're just, as far as I'm concerned, you're a jerk and you're fired. Okay, and suddenly you feel that hurt. Now, you can look at, because it registers in the body, and uh, often it's taught, in, uh, some teachers teach it, uh, um, uh, an Indian teacher named Goenka, that's his whole teaching, is to look at bodily sensations. Because the body does express some of what's going on in the mind. It has to. The two are interconnected. And if you just look at that, that in that moment, if you're really attentive, there's no me or mine. But that requires full, undivided attention. And it's not strained. It's not like... It's because as you practice this, the quality of awareness becomes more natural and more available to you. And you're aware of the ache and the pain and where you feel it in the body. And when you're really totally there, there is no me or mine. So in that sense... But now, uh, if your attention wavers even for a second, suddenly the mind comes in and starts telling you about what that person said and then you start imagining... What, what, uh, if you lost your job, you're imagining what life is going to be like, and suddenly you have torment. But I'm going to push it back one step further. Is it possible that when somebody insults you, you don't even get hurt in the first place? And I would say it is. Now, uh, can we start right there? Not too likely, because um, if you are fully present, and you let's say you say to me... Uh, this is the worst Dharma talk I ever heard in my life. You are an idiot. I'm never coming back here again. Because I'm fully enlightened, <laughs> I just hear it. And uh, because there's no one there. In other words, that's why I'm fully present, because Larry ain't here. It's a great world when I'm not here. And when you, I don't know you, but when you're not there, you're more alive. Because who you think you are is who you think you are. It's an idea. It's a construction. So rather than uh, me tell you what's right, find out for yourself. But you'll see, at very least, you can't help but see that the mind plays a huge role in either enhancing, eliminating, or making making a, a byproduct of the awareness can be the suffering just falls away. Or if there's not much awareness, and for most of us to begin with, there's very little, then there's a huge amount of suffering. When you look carefully, you'll see the mind is playing in an extraordinarily important part in that. Because your question is a very good one, because what is being said is this sense of me and mine is created by the mind. It's not there the way a tree is, although it appears to be that solid. Can I ask a follow-up? Of course. So how, so how does one, in terms of practice, um, eliminate the ego in... See, don't get, uh, if you can use another language, because then you have a war. I gave an example. Uh, first off, uh, again, it's the follow-up question. Uh, I'm going to take the time to try to answer it in a little bit of detail because it's for all of us. Um, when you're fully paying attention to what's happening, and this is something you have to see if it's true. Maybe uh, I'm deluded. When you're fully paying attention, there is no self-consciousness there. And you'll see that that is very, very different. Now, to begin with, you're trying to do it, so there is self-consciousness. You're trying to learn how to do it. As the practice uh, becomes more mature naturally, 
uh, it becomes effortless. As more and more you see, you see there's not one answer to your question. For example, if learning how to live is central to, if, to wisdom, then learning, one of the, maybe the most important kind of learning that can go on is seeing the enormous price that we pay from living an egocentric life. And that, again, is not an ideology. It's that you see it, in fact. You see that living in this certain way produces suffering. It is the source of suffering. There's some security, but finally, there's a huge price being paid for being preoccupied with yourself. So then the mind might say, well, then I'll become a saint. You know, I'll just become... But that could be the ego again, now becoming a saint. So... The reason I'm not using the term like how to get rid of it, because that, then that's a struggle, is just to see it. Now, when you start to tap the depth that's in you, it's in all of us, the constructions of the mind take on a new meaning to you. They'll seem relatively trivial. As you can really see, the mind is blabbing on about who you are. Now, I'm, that, do you see what I'm getting at? Because... Uh, you're situated in a much deeper place than the ideas and images that are strongly conditioned from a lifetime of being told who you are, starting when you're a little girl, you know, people looking at you, and you being interested. First you're given a name, and then it goes from there. And then school and friends, and before we know it, we have a whole scrapbook. And life is not necessarily... This is saying that uh, enhancing the story or getting better pictures in the scrapbook, is not what dharma is. Uh, dharma is going to an opening up another dimension that's much deeper. Uh, in my experience, the deepest healing comes in the silence, not in trying to heal anything. And more and more you live from the silence, and it's not limited to special times and places. You can be in Times Square, New Year's Eve, and inside be at peace. Or it's inner peace. Okay. Um, how do you get to inner peace, at least with this practice, by seeing the lack of it? We're not at peace. If, we, if you were, you wouldn't be here. So, and there are plenty of people who are not here who are also not at peace. It doesn't mean that every, people who are not here are... are <laughs> so as you start to see the many ways in which selfing, let's just call it selfing, here, here's one thing you'll see if you watch it. Things come and go, come and go. There's no, nothing that you can point to and say, this is me, because it just lasts for a while. And then it's gone. And then something else comes. Maybe there's a pause. And in that, maybe there's no construction telling you who you are. And it's a relief. You feel at peace for two minutes. And then suddenly the machine starts in again. And it could be contradictory with what just preceded it said. First, you're, you're wonderful. And then the next one says, who are you kidding? And you watch, you see that all of them are constructs. They're ideas. They're mental notions. And as you watch them arise and pass away, they start losing their power. Then you start to taste a mind free of notions about who it is, and it's just superior. So there's an intelligence in us which prefers to live there rather than to try to get the perfect me endlessly and get the world to tell us how good we are and then get so hurt when it doesn't. Making any sense? It's a start anyway.
please. Exactly. Um, and I'm wondering how we start to make decisions when we let go of that. Yes. How, how do we actually react to something? If you recognize that somebody has said something to you and you're fully aware of it, you don't let it touch you, what is your reaction? It's not that you don't let it touch you. It doesn't touch you. It's just, okay. First of all, to begin with, uh, the old mind is making the decisions. That's the same mind that got us into the predicament that it's trying to get us out of. In other words, it's the past. The mind, uh, everything, knowledge, knowledge being what we've learned, which has its obvious use, but also experience, what's happened to you in your life, that's all in your computer. And we're seeing the world, that's what I mean, the mirror is not clear. You're seeing what's right here through yesterday's eyes. It's unavoidable. We all begin that way. We don't know it, uh, which means that we're motivated. We have likes and dislikes and prejudices and fears and apprehension, uh, etc. interpretations. None of that is, is clear seeing. Okay. With practice, the seeing starts to become clearer. Now, let's say uh, I have a reaction to something you just said, and then the, let's say decision in the sense of what I say to you will be a reaction, and it comes from my past. Where else is it going to come from? That's what, that's, I'm made up of, my, of, my, of the past. When we take the power out of that by being aware of it and it gets weaker, there's something much deeper. And from that place, I would call that a response, not a reaction. Now, the mysterious part to this day for me, because I've been at this for a while, is that that clear mind, which is not from the past, it's a form of intelligence that is not, has nothing to do with your conditioning or your culture or what's happened to you, can draw upon, let's say, technical knowledge. If you're a scholar or you're this or that. And it also, you don't have amnesia. Uh, so it can make use of the accumulations, but it, it realizes what they are, their accumulations. And more and more you're rooted in who you always were, which is not an idea. And so the decisions, now this is something you really have to test. I can just tell you from my point of view, because I've seen it over and over again, not only in myself, but others. This, by the way, is within reach of all of us. It's not, you know, just unique people. But you have to have interest in it. Um, I far more trust action that comes out of a clear mind, which means a mind that isn't ruled by the past, um, that has a much greater likelihood of being wiser and kinder than the old mind, which is just the old patterns constantly reasserting themselves again and again, slightly new combinations. Now, how do you know if that's true or not? You're going to have to take the practice into the fire of living and see if it's true. But if you're new, probably some of what you need to do is work with the mind to get it to be calm and clear enough so that it's fit to be able to look at the things that come up, which are very challenging, fear, loneliness, etc. Do the words at least make a little bit of sense? Okay. What is the relationship between egolessness and, and action or inaction? That's just what I, yeah, yeah go ahead. There's a certain sense that, that 
But that, that's that's uh, not, uh, this is what they say in all the talk shows. Uh, in all due respect, you know, I have to say, um, you're interpreting something. That, that's your conclusion about what the, the empty mind is, and it's typical. We think of it as fatalistic and passive. How can anything get done? It's just going to sit here like that. The Buddha got a lot done. Jesus got a lot done. Or is Action doesn't have to come from ambition, from striving, from conflict, from friction. It can come from love. And so um, the clear mind, uh, the part of the challenge is it has to be brought into life. I've been saying that again and again. You've heard that, I know. And what I'm saying is that that improves the quality of your action because it's coming from a place that's deeper than the same old conditioning. And some pe- the temperament would uh, would vary, uh, some people would be more, let's say, reclusive, scholarly, uh, uh, introverted. Some people would be more extroverted. Uh, the clarity must express itself through your particular character structure, your equipment. For example, let's say you and I, I don't know you, but you and I tap this silence. And then the next challenge is to learn how to soak in it, sort of, to let it work on you. Okay, it may sound like it's just a holiday. Something extraordinary goes on in the silence. Okay. Now, how I express the silence has to be through my, the only equipment I have, which is how I've been shaped, so it'll be expressed through someone like me. Uh, may I ask what your work is or any of, anything about your interest? Software engineer. Okay, you're a software engineer. I am definitely not a software engineer. In other words, that would be I'm a dinosaur. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, that pure energy, that pure intelligence, I would go so far. In my case, if you put me in front of a, you know, said, do something, I can't. But in your case, the clarity can be expressed through technical knowledge. In other words, it's not like you throw away what you've learned. And that's where tea ceremony, martial arts, uh, some of that's romanticized, in my opinion. But that means you express yourself in the world from a place that is, uh, it's a different quality of energy. And uh, everything that you've learned can be used, like even thought. But now you don't, you, without examining thought, we're used by thought. Now, that's another conclusion that you have to test. We're learning how to use thought when it's appropriate and how to let it go and just be silent. So um, someone might be uh, very active and someone else might uh, just sit in the mountains for their whole life. And so uh, that has nothing to do with the clear mind. That is how you express it. Now, in the work with my own teachers, let's say when the sitting got very strong, they then started challenging me. Okay, take that into your, you're going to visit your parents this weekend, bring it to Brooklyn. That's the ultimate challenge, at least for a guy like me. Okay, so what he, what he was doing, first of all, he didn't say that for, for a while. And then at a certain point, if the mind is a little bit more clear, test it. And see, people who look at you, who love you, but they don't understand what you're talking about, they disapprove of what you use, that you drop what you used to do and you've picked this up instead. And then if they get to you, then you see that there's more to go. You're still fragile. The mind is still fragile. It doesn't fully have confidence in itself. So it's... Um, 
It isn't a teaching of fatalism and passivity. Let, let me give you an example, because uh, uh, one of the teachers who's influenced us a lot here is Ajahn Chah. Uh, I, my own training, most of the Vipassana I learned was in Thailand, in the forest tradition. And a lot of what we're talking about is equanimity, in order for the mind to be really equanimous, to be able to handle whatever comes at it even in an even way. So in the forest tradition, the way it works is each meditator has a separate little hut. It's, it's not a forest, it's a jungle, okay? So you're in your hut, and you can't see anyone else's hut. There's a set of pathways that interconnect everyone. They all lead to a central clearing area where there's a big hall where the community meets together for meals and maybe a talk by the teacher and, you know, be like this hall. But for the most part, you're in your own hut, and you can't see anyone else's hut. So there was a tremendous rainstorm, a tremendous wind and rain, and it went on for days. And after it was over, this teacher, Ajahn Chah, some of you have heard us mention him, and his books are in our library, he went around to check to see how all the yogis were in their individual huts. And he came to one, and the hut, one part of the hut was completely blown away. It's thatched roof. And the meditator was sitting under it, soaked. The, that part of the hut was soaked, and he was sitting there with a kind of a proud look on his face. And so the, the teacher asked him, well, what's going on? He said, well, my equanimity was just, uh, it was no problem. You know, and he says, yes, but that's the equanimity of a water buffalo, not a person. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me bring it closer to home. Uh, let, let's say, uh, hopefully this doesn't happen. Let's say we're all sitting with our eyes closed. This question is very rich, sorry. <laughs> We're all sitting with our eyes closed. And suddenly, uh, it starts getting very hot. And then really hot. And then sweat starts pouring down. And since I do peek, you're not allowed to peek, but I have to see how it's going. I peek and I see the center is on fire. It's not like you sit here, uh, temperature going up, right arm ablaze, left part of the room the person who's clearest should be the first one to get everyone to get out of here. Okay. Now, here's the opposite of that, which would be a caricature, which is what you're getting at. This actually happened many, many years ago. John Kabat-Zinn, who some of you have worked with, and I used to teach together at the Old Baptist, Cambridge Old Baptist Church. And I would teach the meditation part, and John would teach the yoga part. And then, um, at any rate, there was a stage where people would put their belongings, and then we'd sit, and the, the teachings that I would give was sort of like, uh, just let everything happen, just sit, just be yourself, allow whatever, the coming and going. It's a typical, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's uh, no agenda. And uh, one day, and people are sitting with their eyes closed, and whatever is there, that's what your life is in that moment, just fully be with it and watch it, and then you see it go, and then whatever is next. And so it was all this kind of relaxed, open up to, let everything happen. And someone came in while we were doing that and made off with a lot of wallets and computers and everything. So Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.